Exodus chapter number 3, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 10. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert, came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land of flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this day. What a blessing it is to get to be in your house. I pray that you'd take the holy, inspired, inerrant, preserved Word of God and that you would wield it as your sword, the sword of your Spirit in our hearts and minds. I pray that the work that would bring you glory would be performed in us. And Lord, that we would with meekness receive the engrafted Word. Lord, that we would not be looking to one another, not thinking of others, but Lord, that we'd be focused on what this Word in this moment means to us and how you seek to work in our lives. We'll be sure to thank you for all that transpires, for certainly, Lord, you'll be due the glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Exodus chapter number 3, we come upon Moses at one of the lowest points in his life. I think when we read verse number 1, if I'm being frank, it is easy to pass over the significance of this passage. Notice it again with me. Verse 1 says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Now, to be honest with you, when you read that, that seems a little dry. It seems just a little matter of fact. It's just telling us what's going on in the life of Moses. But if we consider the background of this passage, then we understand a little bit of the significance of this verse. I want to read a portion of Scripture to you out of the book of Acts. Now, in Acts chapter number 7, Stephen, uh, one of the first deacons of the church, is about to be martyred, and he is giving a testimony of what God has done in the life of Israel and uh, to the deity, the divinity of Christ. And in telling this story of God's dealings with Israel, he comes upon the story of Moses in their history. And listen to how he tells the story of Moses' early years. Verse number 22 of Acts chapter 7, he says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. 
For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. The next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, your brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. When forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. Stephen, in telling the story of Moses, he does not begin at the burning bush, but he begins with an earlier episode of failure in the life of Moses. And once we understand the path that Moses took to get to this place on the backside of the desert, tending over this little flock of sheep and meeting God in the burning bush, we understand how significant this moment was in his life. I mean, this was the the rock bottom of a life that had been headed downward ever since that fateful moment in Egypt when he decided to take into his own hands the plan of God and carry it out through his own means. When we read verse number 1, understanding this context, we can see three important truths in this verse. I want to share this with you to frame our message this morning. Let me say, number one, this verse represents Moses' failure. Think about the first phrase, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Now, if that was said about most people, we would consider that an innocuous enough statement. I mean, it's just telling us what his vocation is. I don't know, I've never talked to a shepherd in the land of Midian, but I would imagine they're not ashamed of the job that they do. I'd imagine they don't walk around with their head hung low, embarrassed that they are a shepherd. A shepherd is a noble vocation. But can I remind you that this is Moses who once was set to be the very ruler of Egypt itself. He had been taken into the home of Pharaoh, had been named an heir for the throne of Egypt. This is a man whose life had once contained all the promise that was imaginable. This is a man whose heart God stirred, who God had had his hand on from the day that he was a babe placed in that ark of bulrushes in the river. This is a man whose life had so much potential, but he made one fundamental mistake in his life. He tried to take matters into his hands instead of putting them in God's hands. When he did this, he failed in the work of God in his life. Can I just, and we're going to get there in the message, but we're already here, so let me just say it. Hey, listen, you want to fail in the matter of serving the Lord, try to do it in your own strength. You want to succeed, mortify self and trust in the Lord and lean on Him and do things God's way and you'll see success. When we read this passage, it is a reminder of Moses' failure that a man that once had so much opportunity blew it and is now sitting on the backside of the desert and in obscurity. It represented Moses' failure. But then the Bible says this, he led the flock to the backside of the desert. Now, I didn't know a desert had a front side or a backside. But evidently, it's got a front side and a back side. And God lives on the back side of the desert. And he is going to a place, and the idea in the passage here, of remoteness. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me not only of Moses' failure, but of Moses' fleeing. Now, the Bible says some interesting things about why he left out of Egypt and how he left out of Egypt. You know, the first time that Moses left out of Egypt, he left because he was fearing the Pharaoh. He was fleeing for his life. He knew that he could be condemned to death. The second time that he leaves Egypt, he's leaving not because he's fleeing Pharaoh, but because he's trusting the Lord. 
But the first time that he leaves, he's leaving because he's scared for his life. Now, one could rightly ask, well, why? Here's Moses with an army of probably over two and a half million slaves that if he could win their hearts, if he would do things God's way, he would have at his command. And the natural question is, why didn't he stay and fight for the cause of God in his life? Can I tell you why? Because he's a coward. He was scared. He was so fearful of his own personal well-being that he flaked out, ran away, and gave up on the call of God in his life. Can I tell you, listen, when you do things in your own strength, you are prone to fear. You know why? Because the devil don't even have to lie to you to shake you. All he has to do is tell you the truth. If you're trusting in you, all the devil has to do is come along and say, you ain't enough. And you know what? Not only are our, our flesh, but our mind and our heart bears witness with that. You know why? Because it's true. We're not enough. If we're trusting in us, we have reason to fear because we are never enough. It's only when we trust in the Lord that we find ourselves to be bold as lions. It's only when we trust in the Lord that we find confidence. Here we have Moses. Listen, not just the failure. We've got Moses the quitter. A man who walked away from the call of God. Don't you imagine that throughout his days in the in the wilderness, in the desert as a shepherd, don't you imagine the thing that kept him out most at night was knowing that he had quit on God. This is a man that if I'm to be frank with you, if I was working with this man in ministry, if I had hired him to do a job, and this is how he had conducted himself, he'd be fired and I wouldn't be interested in seeing his resume again. But God, I tell you, I'm thankful that God is not like us. Because I love this next phrase. Now, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. That reminds us uh, it represents Moses' failure. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert in obscurity, running away as far from Egypt as he can. It reminds us of Moses' fleeing. But then listen to what it says. And he came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. You know what this does? This verse reveals Moses' future. I love this. Moses didn't know where God was. Whenever the bush, uh, the burning bush appears before him, he's as surprised as you or I would be to see such a thing. He doesn't know that he's coming to the Mount of God. When we read about Horeb, this is the first place that it really contains any significance. We learn from the book of Acts that Mount Horeb is also Mount Sinai. This is the place that later on he will come back to and receive the law of God. But to him at this moment, none of that has transpired yet. This is just another mountain somewhere on the backside of the desert. I'm saying this. He didn't go looking for God. God came looking for him. He didn't know that his footsteps, his path was taking him into the place that God would meet him. In other words, it wasn't Moses going to rekindle the fires of service in his heart. It was God meeting Moses to stir him and to use him in a future plan. It reminds me of this, that Moses had a future. Can I say to you this morning, hey, listen, you may feel as though you're a failure. You may look back at things in your life, opportunities blown, at, at chances that were missed, that you maybe didn't have the boldness or the faith to, to pursue and to seize. And you say, well, preacher, my life is just a failure. Maybe you're like Moses or like John Mark. You quit on God. Things got tough. They got difficult. You got nervous. You got discouraged. And you just quit on God. And you say, preacher, God must be done with me. Surely He wouldn't use me. I got news for you. He's looking for you this morning because He wants to use you and make your life count for Him. You see, the reality is anybody that fulfills the first two uh, 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 characteristics of Moses here is also revealing the third. You say, preacher, I feel like a failure. I've quit on God. Well, don't quit on God because He's not quit on you. There is a future 
still for you. God still had a plan for Moses' life. But we find that God always does things that are needful. Nothing that God does is for no reason at all. He's always deliberate in His purposes and His processes. And so, before He can use Moses... Now, it wouldn't have been simpler and easier if He had just spoke to him said, Moses, go back to Egypt. We're going to try it again. You're going to do it right this time. We're going to carry out my plan. But that's not what God does. God instead appears to Moses in this burning bush. Why does God do that? And what is the significance of it? When we look at verses 2 through 10, we find that there were several things that were needed in the life of Moses if he was to be used of God. Here's what I want to preach to you on this morning. A second chance at service. A second chance at service. I hope that anybody in this room that's not serving God to the capacity that you ought to be and know you ought to be, I hope that everyone in this room would say, you know, preacher, I want to be used of God. I don't want my life to be a waste. I don't want to be a has-been. I want to be somebody that's doing something for God in my life. But you may feel like there's no room and no hope and no future for you. I'm here to tell you that God has a plan for your life. God desires to use you. But there are some things that are going to have to happen before God can use you. If these things are not present in your life, you're not going to be used of God. But if you'll allow God to do these things, God can still use you. What are the things that were needed in Moses' life? Look at verse number 2 with me. The Bible says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Let me say, number one, this morning, for Moses' life to be used, for your life or my life to be used, a revelation was needed. He had to get a fresh glimpse of who God was. This is probably the most powerful and poignant uh, of all of the features of this narrative before us. Certainly it's the thing that just as it captured Moses' attention, it captures our attention. And God would not have done it in this way, except it had to be done in this way. He wanted Moses to be reminded that though all of the things that Moses had desired to do for God were in the past, that God was not in the past, but in the present, and still desired to do something in his life. I love what the Bible says here, and I don't know if you picked up on it. You know, you've probably heard me use the terminology before a theophany or a Christophany. There are instances in the Bible when there is what we call a pre-Bethlehem incarnation of Christ. Times when Christ shows up and appears before He was born in a manger in Bethlehem because we know that He didn't start to exist uh, at the moment of conception, we know that He didn't start to exist when He was birthed and born and laid in that manger. He is the eternal God. He always existed. And so it's no surprise, hey, that He would show up sometimes in His creation. And here we have one of the most vivid examples of it. In fact, if you're wondering, you say, Preacher, I, I just I don't know. I don't know if that's really what's going on here. Well, verse 2 says, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him. Uh, verse number 3 says, When the Lord saw that He turned aside to see, God called unto him, out of the midst of the bush. So we see very clearly the angel of the Lord is God in this passage and is in the Old Testament almost without exception. So why did he appear to him in this burning bush? He wanted Moses to see him like he had never seen him before. You know, part of the problem with Moses' choices early in his life 
is he didn't have a clear picture of who God was. God had spoken to Moses. No doubt Moses' parents had taught him as well as they could uh, in what limited time they had whenever his mother was nursing him. But by and large, Moses had been raised around the gods of Egypt. He had been raised around pagan concepts and pagan ideals. And so his idea of God was a very Egyptian idea of God. You know what the Egyptian idea of God is? That the greatest among them are actually gods themselves. Uh, The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh himself was nothing but a manifestation of God. And that if a man could be as great as Pharaoh, then he could be God. Now you take a young man like uh, Moses who's 40 years old, who is in the strength of his life. You, You take a man who has all of the potential and all of the resources before him and he knows that he is set for the throne of God. I'll tell you what happened to Moses. He got to thinking he was God himself. And he just took matters into his own hands. Now listen, probably chances are in your life you're never going to explicitly think that you're God yourself. But you know, when we take our life into our own hands, that's what we're doing. We're saying that we're God ourselves. That we can control things. That we can manipulate things. That we can we can master things. And Moses failed because he started to think that God looked like him, spoke like him, acted like him, and that whatever he did must be what God would want. God disabuses him of that notion here at the burning bush. And he shows to Moses, Moses, I'm nothing like you. My ways are higher than your ways, Moses. My thoughts are uh, higher than your thoughts, Moses. You can't even fathom or conceive of the greatness and majesty and glory of who I am. And let me say, in our lives, if we're going to be used of God, man, we have to know who God is. We've got to see Him for who He is. We got to know it's not enough to just serve some generic concept of God. That's what the pagans do. If we want to be used of God, we've got to grow intimately acquainted with God. We've got to spend time with Him, spend time in His Word. We've got to see how great and glorious and majestic He is. Listen, when you get a glimpse of how great He is, you won't want to substitute yourself for Him. Uh, uh, you'll see that He can do it better than you can do it. He can do it greater than you can do it. He can do it more efficiently than you can do it. Uh, Moses, once he sees God in his way, from this day forward, he doesn't try to operate in his own flesh, at least in the law. So he needs a revelation of the person of God. But then, you know, the question has to be asked. I mean, God could have appeared in any number of ways, right? I mean, there are other times in the Old Testament that God manifests His presence in, in a number of ways. But here it is distinct and unique. We don't have another example like this in Scripture of God appearing in a burning bush. Why did God appear this way? I think that Moses needed a revelation of the person of God. But number two, I think he needed a revelation of the processes of God. Look what it says. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, that in and of itself, believe it or not, is not that remarkable for that part of the earth. In high desert, it's not terribly uncommon for the scorching of the noonday sun to be enough to ignite some dry piece of brush or some dry piece of wood that's lying there. In that place in the world, it wouldn't be uncommon at all, really, for someone to be walking along and to see smoke rising from somewhere. I mean, half of California is on fire all the time. Somebody say amen to that. Y'all didn't say amen to that. I don't know what that means. <laughs> So that in and of itself was not what was remarkable. Look what it says. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. The thing that was remarkable and miraculous was not the fact that the bush was on fire. It's that the bush was on fire, but it wasn't burning up. You know why that is? Because the fire that burned inside this bush 
was different than any earthly fire that was in existence. Is God not trying to teach Moses something here? When he was a young man in Egypt, he burned with the fires of ambition. He burned with the fires of strategy and scheming. He burned with the fires of confidence and hubris. But now he's learning that if he's going to burn without burning out, he's going to have to have a different kind of fire burning inside of him. Can I tell you how God seeks to use His people? It is not by bragging on their greatness. It is not by magnifying their capability. It is not by utilizing their resources. The way that God seeks to use His people is by burning within them like a holy fire and using people that don't seem usable, using people that seem ill-equipped, using people that seem like unusual choices. The New Testament verse for this is God has not chosen the mighty things of this world. He's chosen the things that are small, the things that are weak, the things that are base. He's chosen the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are... In other words, God's not looking out and drafting a baseball team. He's calling people and using them in His service. Moses had to understand if he was ever going to be used of God, it had to be God and not him. Some of us think, and and I've made this mistake. I was talking to someone last night. Often when a pastor first starts pastoring, for the first few years they try to pastor in the strength of their personality. They try to be everything for everybody. They try to always have the right answer to everything. They they, they try to always do things out of the strength of their own intellect or their own wisdom and, and, and things like that. And let me tell you something. That is a short path to burnout and discouragement. You've got to move past that in ministry to the place that you're willing to say, I I am what I am by the grace of God, and God can use me if I'll surrender to Him. But if God doesn't do it, I don't want it done. If God doesn't work, I don't want the work done. I'm not trying to, to, uh, to drum it up. I'm not trying to stir it up. I'm just letting God bring it up and do something in my life. In your life as a Christian, you have to understand, if you're going to serve the Lord to any success, It's going to have to be the Lord in you and not you in and of yourself. So he had to learn this is how God works. God doesn't work by picking people that seem likely candidates. God works rather. He doesn't work by picking people that have the resources and wherewithal within themselves. He picks people that are unlikely. He picks people that seem bankrupt of human intuition about those things and and human equipping about those things. He takes something as common as a bush. And he lights it a fire and does so in a way that it can burn and give light and give heat and give guidance without being consumed. A revelation was needed in Moses' life. Let me say number two, not only a revelation was needed, but a response was needed. Look at verse number three. The Bible says, and Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Can I tell you how this story could have gone? It could have been that Moses walked by, looked up on the hillside, saw a bush on fire, saw that it was not consumed, said, huh, that's weird, and just kept walking. We're living in a world today that there's not much that weirds me out anymore, just to be honest with you. There's not much you could point at and say, isn't that weird? That I'd say, ooh. Uh, weird is just every day now. And, uh, I mean, he could have just looked at it and brushed it off. He could have even looked at it and said, what a glorious sight, and then just kept on walking. He could have looked at it and said, hey, that's God up there in that bush. What a wonderful thing, and then just kept walking. You see, here's what it was going to take for the plan of God to be engaged in the life of Moses. He was going to have to turn aside and go to the bush. I would say it this way. 
there was a human response that was needed in his life. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that God is not going to drag you down and hog tie you and make you serve him. If you're waiting for that day, I'm sorry, it ain't going to happen. Now, he might send a storm after you. He might send a fish after you. He might send an east wind after you. He might send a new day sun after you. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to choose to serve God. There must be a human response. Notice what this human response was. First, we see that he changed his direction. He was going a certain direction in his life. And he said, if God's over there, I want to be where God is at. Part of the problem is we want God to scoot up beside us and walk along with us. But often, especially in the matter of God using us, that's not how God works. He doesn't say, show me where you're going and I'll come pick you up and carry you. I know we read the poem and the footprints and the sand and that's good. And I'm not saying there ain't some truth there. And certainly the Lord's carried me plenty of times. But I'm saying if God's going to use us in our life, it's not us texting the Lord and saying, hey, meet me at such and such a place at such and such a time. It's us saying, where's God? I want to go with God. I want God to have control of my life. He had to change his direction. And in the changing of that direction, you know what he's doing? He's forfeiting his autonomy. He was going a certain direction that he had chosen. And he said, I'm going to quit going the direction that I've chosen. And I'm going to go wherever God is and wherever that takes me. I see that he changed his direction. Not only that, a human response was needed to give attention. He says, I will turn aside and see this great sight while the bush is not burned. He said, i got to see this thing. And I promise you, when he was standing right there face to face with that burning bush, that he wasn't distracted looking at this and looking at that and going this direction and going that direction. His full focus and attention was on God and the work that God was doing. Part of the reason we struggle to be used of God, if I'm just to be a million percent frank, and it's true in my life, I bet it's true in yours, is we have way too many distractions. We have a thousand irons in the fire and we're trying to do a hundred things at one time and we'll pencil God in if we can find a place for I got news for you. Listen, if you want to be a marginal, mediocre, cultural Christian that just has God hanging out somewhere in the bio of your Twitter page, then you can do God that way. But if you want to be somebody sold out, on fire, used of God, that makes a difference in this world, then you're going to have to give Him your full focus. Your full focus. He had to give his attention to the Lord. Get his eyes off of self. Get his eyes off of his plans. And get his eyes on the Lord. There was a human response. But then I see, in response to the human response, there was a divine response. It says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. What does that tell us? Well, number one, we see that it was a conditional response. It was not until and unless... God saw him turn aside. Can I tell you, I know we love to paint up this concept of God, and and I don't know, maybe we've imported this from that Calvinist poison, but this concept of God as though he is just this immovable creature that that who, whose will is, is untouched by human actions and human desires. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God that is sensitive, that is in touch, that is in tune with the actions of humanity and is very much interacting with our responses. There are certain things if you won't do, God won't do. There are certain things that for God to do, it's going to require something from you. I thank God that there are some promises of God that are unconditional. But you better believe if you're going to be a Bible believer that there are some promises of God that are absolutely conditional. What would have happened if Moses had kept on walking? God would have kept silent. 
it would have ended right there. He would have saw a thing and that would have been it. You know, some people's Christianity never goes beyond seeing a thing and then moving on. Uh, listen, and I'm not, I, I'm not trying to be rough on you. I've already got all the work out of you I need out of you. Amen. So I, I, I guess I can hurt feelings, but, but, but the, I ain't trying to be rough on you. But I'm just telling you, some people's Christianity is nothing beyond coming in here, sitting in a pew, seeing a thing, and then going out the doors completely unchanged. Just come in, spectators, spectators. Part of the reason, I'm not going to get in the weeds, <laughs> but that's part of the reason that so much modern day Christianity it is so cancerous to Christian biblical culture. It is fostering the idea of a spectator relationship with the house of God. I'm going to come in, I'm going to sit and listen to the professional band play, I'm going to listen to the professional singer sing, I'm going to watch the professional pastor get up and do his whole speech that he did at the 9 o'clock service, at the 6.30 service, that he's going to do at the 2 o'clock service, he's going to go through his routine that he's worked up, and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to absorb it like I'm sitting down at the Civic Coliseum watching some show go off. Hey, listen, that ain't the house of God. The house of God ain't for spectators. The house of God is for worshipers. And that's what God intends, that we be intimately, actively engaged with the process of worship when we come into the house of God. It's to be conditional. We see there's some things, if we just want to come and sit and see and go, oh, that was good, and turn around and go home, God will let us. But if we're willing to turn aside, if we're willing to give our focus to the Lord, then He will work. We see it was conditional. We see, number two, it was personal. He said, Moses, Moses, this is one of the great double calls in scriptures. There's a handful of them where God says somebody's name, but he don't just say it once. He says it twice. He don't want them wondering whether he's speaking. He said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Can I give you a little, let, let me give you a little preaching hack. All right. Listening to preaching hack, not hack, but hack. You know, I can do that, did you? Uh, let me give you a little preaching hack. If you just if you come into the house of God, and if your heart and mind is a million miles away, and if you're not turning your focus and attention on the Lord, and if you've not surrendered your will to the truth of this book, you'll do exactly what Moses could have done. You'll come and you'll sit and you'll see the fire burn, but you'll never hear his voice speak. You'll see him work in other people's lives, but you'll never hear his voice in your own life. God desired to speak personally. Can I tell you, God desires to speak personally in your life. Now, I'm not saying you're going to hear an audible voice. I'm not saying you'll explicitly hear a name. But God will speak so distinctly to your heart that there won't be a doubt that God's dealing with you. We see he dealt with them. A response was needed. And then notice what it says. So Moses shows up. He gets to the burning bush. And the Lord speaks to him, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Now, what's the very next thing that God says? I'll tell you what, what modern cultural Christianity would have said. All right, fill this out. I'm going to need name, address, email address, and uh, let's be sure and get your work schedule. We're going to get you plugged in and hooked up and signed up and tuned in with this ministry, that ministry, this ministry, that ministry. That's not how God responds. Now, God had a lot for Moses to do. In fact, it would contain the next 40 years of Moses' life. He would be used of God in a mighty way. But before he could be used of God, a reverence was needed in his life. Before God ever says, Moses, sign your name on the dotted line, head out the door, this is what I have for you. He says, there's some things you need to understand, Moses. What are the reverence that he needed? Reverence for what? Well, notice what it says in verse 5. He said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. He wanted Moses to understand what he was getting into. Number one, a reverence for his word was needed. 
He says, draw not nigh hither. Now, there's a lot we could say about that. Let me say, thank God that the New Testament is not draw not nigh, but it's draw nigh. Draw nigh unto God and He'll draw nigh unto you. I'm thankful that grace did what the law never could. Hey, what the law could not do and it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. I'm glad we don't approach under a mountain like Mount Sinai that burns with blackness and smoke and thunder and fire. But we come unto the holy Jerusalem, under innumerable company of uh, people born again by the grace of God. Man, I'm thankful for all that. I might just preach on that instead. Y'all like that better. I'm glad for that. But can I just boil this down to one simple truth here? God says, don't do this, Moses. And He never tells him why. He says, the ground you're standing on, this is why you need to take your shoes off. Because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. But He never tells Moses why He cannot come any closer. He simply sets Moses a boundary and then expects Moses to obey. You know why God did that? Because in our lives, if we're ever to be used of God, we're going to have to learn to respect the boundaries of the Lord. Listen, God's not always going to tell you why in your life. Now, listen, I understand in the matter of sin and righteousness, in the matter of right and wrong, God is very clear abundantly in His Word. I'm talking about the choices that you make in your life. God may never tell you why that job and not that one. God may never tell you, young people, why that spouse and not the other one. God may never tell you why that church and not the other one. God may never tell you why that car, why that house, why that whatever it is, why that friend and not the other. But you don't always have to know why. You just have to know what. If you can grow content in your life knowing what without knowing how or why, you will have conquered and mastered the concept of letting the peace of God reign in your heart. Listen, uh, much, much discontentment. You remember the Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain? There's people that are godly, but they ain't happy about it. There's people happy, but they ain't godly. But if you can learn to be godly and content at the same time, then you have found the key to peace in your life. What does contentment mean? It means being satisfied with what God has given you. It doesn't mean not desiring more. We all desire more. We all all want other things, and that's not wrong. And we hopefully all have aspirations for greater things in our life. But it's being willing to say, if this is what God has for me, that's enough. I'm willing to obey Him, even when I don't always understand the reasoning why. Moses got into trouble the first time because he tried to uh, tweak, manipulate, and streamline and enhance the command of God. God had told Moses evidently early on, Moses, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. But here's what God never did. He never told him how. Instead of Moses waiting on the how, he just took off with the what. And he said, I'll just do it my own way. I'll do it my own strength. And he made a mess of his life. Now God says, Moses, here's a boundary. Don't cross it. I'm convinced two things would have happened if Moses had crossed that line. One, God would have probably struck him dead. And two, Moses' life would have never been used for the glory of God. Some of us, God can't use our life because we just refuse to quit crossing His boundaries. He needed a reverence for His Word. And then He says this, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Now, I wish I had a, a, a real deep, beautiful, illuminating application of that. And I guess we could all sit around and, and bounce ideas off each other until we came up with something you or I was satisfied with. But can I just make a practical statement here? He needed a reverence for God's Word, and he needed a reverence for God's holiness. Say, how holy is God? He's so holy, He consecrates the ground that He occupies. How holy is God? He's so holy that your shoes can't even be in the same location as Him. 
That's how holy he is. And Moses needs to understand he ain't dealing with one of these petty, paltry Egyptian gods made in the image of some fallible man. He's dealing with the thrice holy, eternal God of all the universe. And he needed to understand how important that was. Part of the reason that we do not give the attention to the work of God in our life is because we don't have a clear concept of how great and glorious and majestic God is. He needed to understand that God wasn't going to brook with any unholiness in his life. He was going to have to be a holy person if God was going to use him. Moses was not a perfect man. None of us are. But he was a man that was committed to the Lord. And the reason is he had learned in this moment, God is so holy, he won't abide unholiness. Moses, your shoes have walked in unholy places, so take them off. He understood if he had been walking around in unholy places, he could not stand in the presence of God. A reverence was needed. And then I like this. This is encouraging. Amen. Look at verse number 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, why did God say this? He is reminding, we could say it this way, He is reassuring Moses that He is indeed God. Imagine how bewildering Moses' life had been. I don't think it would be a stretch to call Moses' flight from Egypt a crisis of faith. Here is a young man that has been raised and he has been faced with two possible choices regarding who God is. He has been raised with a, a whole panegia of, of, of Egyptian gods that, that he doesn't know uh, anything about, but he's been raised with them. He's been told they're real. He's seen the sorcerers of Egypt work, and, and they have some sort of power, but he doesn't know the extent. And then he's been taught that he was a Hebrew from birth. And he's been taught about the God of Israel, the God that had created all things. He, he's got these two conflicting concepts of God in his mind. He... Cast his lot in with the God of Israel. He chooses to go God's direction to carry out God's plan in his life. But it does not end in success. It ends in failure. He is driven from Egypt an outlaw and fearing for his life. Don't you imagine there was a lot of questions that Moses had over the next 40 years? Don't you imagine there was a, a, lot, of, a lot of conversations with whoever God was in his mind about who God is? Now God shows up and He reassures Moses that the God of Israel is the true God indeed. But not only that, that He's the God of His Father, He's the God of the promises, He's the God of the patriarchs, that He is the same God that He ever has been. I would say this often in our life when we going to be used of God, a reassurance is needed. We need to be reminded and reassured of some things. He, he reassures him, number one, of God's immutability. He says, I'm the God of thy father. I'm not a new God. I'm not a different God. I'm not a changed God. He says, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And I'm the God of Jacob. What is the significance there? Well, it deals with the promises, but it also deals with the pattern, the history of, of God. He's saying, I'm the same God that I've always been. You remember what Elisha needed to hear after Elijah died? You remember what, what Elisha needed to know when Elijah died after the old man of God had been took on to glory? He didn't die. He just, God was driving by. So he picked him up and gave him a ride home. Uh, God takes Elijah to heaven and uh, Elisha is left there in the mantle of Elijah falls and he picks it up. And the first question he asks is, where is the God of Elijah? What's he asking? He's saying this, is God still who he's always been? And often when we've had lapses in our faith and long seasons of, of failing God, we 
begin to wonder if God is who He says He was. And we need to be reminded, hey, it's not God that changed, it was us. He used us once, He'll use us again if we'll make ourselves usable for Him. He need to be reminded of God's immutability. Not only that, look at verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I'll tell you something else I'd be thinking if I was Moses. Forty years in the desert, ain't heard nothing from Egypt. There the people of God are still enslaved and still being ridden hard by their taskmasters. I would have thought to myself, well, I guess God's done give up on delivering the Israelites. I'd be thinking, I guess God gave up on the plan that he had for them. You know, he needed to be reassured of God's interest. He needed to be reminded that God was still interested in using his life and in working in the lives of others. Can I tell you this morning, you may have lost interest in serving the Lord, but God hasn't lost interest in using you in His service. He still desires to. And when you then go to make that that choice, that decision, I want to yield my life to Christ, I want to be used of God, often there's that apprehension, is God still even interested in using me? He wants to be reminded and needs to be reminded that God has not lost interest. He still wants to deliver the, uh, the Israelites. He still wants to use Moses if Moses is willing. And then we see he is reassured of God's intention. Verse number 8, he says, I'm come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, he says this, I've still got a plan, Moses, if you're up to it. I still want to do something if you're willing. He needs to be reminded of God's intention. Hey, can I tell you, God's still working in people's lives. God's still saving sinners. God's still mending marriages. God's still watching over uh, the, the lives of young people who have parents that are praying for them and begging God for them. I understand we look at, at young people whose lives have become shipwrecked and we can grow discouraged, but hey, we got a church full of young people and I don't know where they'll be in six months. I don't know where they'll be in six weeks or six days. But this morning they're in the house of God. They love the Lord. They have a desire to serve Him. Don't give up on serving God. God still desires to work in people's lives. So he needed some reassurances. But ultimately, let me say this and be done, a recommitment was needed. Look at verse number 10. He says, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. If they were going to be used of God, if Moses was going to be used of God, he had to settle some things in his heart. There were some things God needed from him. I would say, number one, there had to be a recommitment to seek his presence. Isn't it wonderful how God says this? God says, come now, therefore. Now, didn't he just get through telling, draw not nigh hither? But now he says, come now, therefore. He doesn't stop there. He says, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh. Here's the process. Running to God, running back to service. Running to God, running back to service. You know what it looks like when we have a life that's used of God? It looks like going out and serving Him, running back and getting comfort, getting strength, getting peace, getting faith, getting the things that we need. This constant exchange, this trade route of spiritual resources that God had built up. But if Moses was going to be used before he could ever go forth, he had to come now. He had to come hither. Now We want to be used of God, but we don't want to come hither to Him. But it don't work that way. He had to seek his presence. Number two, he had to surrender his plan. I don't know what Moses' plan was, but I know that it didn't involve Egypt, and it certainly didn't involve Pharaoh. My suspicion is that Moses' plan was to live out the rest of his days raising his two boys with, with his wife and, and just 
die in obscurity, to not be used of God. I think that was probably his plan. But now God says, no, Moses, here's what you're going to do. You're not going to stay here. You're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to face Pharaoh again. (laughs) Two things he had to forfeit in order to do that. In surrendering his plan, we see, number one, he was forfeiting his anxiety. Last time he had set foot in Egypt, last time he was in Egypt, he was running for his life. Now God says, I'm sending you back, Moses. Moses likely doesn't know what all's transpiring in Egypt. He doesn't know if there's the same Pharaoh. He doesn't know if that Pharaoh has has uh, has abated any and assuaged any in his in his wrath and in his anger. He doesn't get to know. All he can do is step out knowing that God is bigger than Pharaoh. And let me say in our lives, part of the part of the reason, if you're like me, part of the reason we love plans is they give us a sense of security. We feel like we got it all lined out and figured out and we know what's going to happen. Now, if you live life more than eight seconds, you know that you can have all the plans in the world, but a plan does not equal reality. But the plan becomes our security blanket, our emotional salve that makes us feel as though we have some measure of control over our life. Faith displaces that need. Now, I'm not advocating for recklessness. I'm not advocating for disorganization. And God's not either. He's not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. He's a God uh, of regimen. He's a God of systems and processes. And God's not opposed to those things. But understand that we're going to have to forfeit the anxiety, the fear. We're going to have to put those things in God's hands and go forth even when we don't know what the future holds, knowing that God holds that future. We see Him forfeiting His anxiety, but then we see Him forfeiting His strategy. Now, remember what Moses' plan was initially. It wasn't go to Pharaoh. It was go to the children of Israel. I'll tell you what Moses thought was going to happen. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'll tell you what I think. Go ahead and pick it up, Dad. Tell them we're in church. I'll tell you what I think Moses thought was going to happen. I think here's how he pictured it. I think he thought to himself, I'm going to go. I'm going to deliver one of these Israelites. They're going to see that I love them. I'm going to be their champion. They're going to see that I am am truly their leader. And they're going to all rally around me. And I'm going to lead a slave rebellion against these Egyptian taskmasters. We're going to overrun their palaces. We're going to loot their grain houses. We're going to be great triumphant champions. Didn't work that way, did it? Instead, what happens, his brethren turn on him and become the great thing that imperils him in his life. Now God says, you ain't going to go to the Israelites. You're going to go to Pharaoh himself. This is a complete reversal of the plan that Moses had. And you know, if we're going to be used of God, we're going to have to give up our plan and sign on to His plan. Not His plan with our modifications, but His plan entirely. That He had to surrender to His plan finally and I'm done. He had to serve His purpose. He says, Thou thou mayest bring forth My people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You know, this was the work of the rest of Moses' life. He didn't retire from it. He never completed it. He, the Lord, takes him home before they ever get into Canaan. And so for him, this commitment was not a commitment of the next few weeks or the next few years or even the next few decades. This was a commitment for the rest of his life. Can I tell you, listen, we may not always be able to serve God in the capacity or in the manner that we once could. I mean, there's certain things that you may not be able to do. Health may not permit you. Your circumstances may not permit you. But there ain't no retirement for the child of God. We always serve Him. It may be in a different way. It may be in a different manner. But if we want our life to be used of God, we don't, we don't put Him on a timetable and give a shelf life to our commitment. We say, Lord, I'm here. Use me. Use me in my life. You know, Moses responded the right way. And here's how you and I need to respond today. He said, Moses, Moses, 
And he said, here am I. Here am I. Lord, here's my life. Take it and use it in whatever way that you can. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. Father, I pray that you would use this invitation. I pray that your people would do serious business with you. Lord, that they would take these few moments to consecrate and surrender their will to your will. Lord, and that they would seek and endeavor to let your work be done in their life and through it. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name.